Okay, hi everyone. I think we're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, thank you so much for coming. My name is Diana Thompson. I'm the curator of the collection here at the National Academy. And on behalf of Director Carmen Brannigan and the entire staff and board, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's review panel. This event occurs once a month here at the National Academy from fall through spring and is organized in partnership with David Cohen and artcritical.com. And I'd like to mention that this season of the review panel marks the 10-year anniversary of the start of our partnership with David, who has kept this wonderful and unique program thriving for so many years. So congratulations to that. I should also mention that the review panel is generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts. Tonight's panelists will discuss several exhibitions currently on view in galleries and museums around New York. And I also encourage you to see the exhibitions currently on view here at the National Academy. In the museum galleries uh, through January 11th is Beyond the Classical, Imagining the Ideal Across Time, an exhibition that explores the ways artists have referenced classical themes such as history, mythology, allegory, and beauty over the course of 200 years. Featured in the exhibition are works from the Academy's 19th and 20th century collections, alongside works on loan by major modern and contemporary artists. In conjunction with this exhibition, we are hosting a panel discussion on Wednesday, December 10th at 6.30. Three of the artists in the exhibition, Barry X. Ball, Vittoria Cherici, and Philip Haas, will join in conversation moderated by art historian, literary critic, author, and poet David Shapiro, about the influence of classicism in their work. I hope you can join us that evening for what I'm sure will be an enlightening and lively discussion. Also currently on view in a dedicated project space in the museum's fourth floor are works by designer Wendell Castle and the architect and academician William Pedersen. Right outside this room in the school's gallery is the exhibition of one of our studio intensive students, Floor Grutenhaus, which will be on view through January 1st. On your seats, you'll find more information about our upcoming programs and how to become a member of the National Academy, which I hope you'll consider if you like what you hear tonight. And just outside this door, there's a table set up where you can find additional materials on things like school course offerings. But now for the review panel, please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as moderator David Cohen, publisher and editor of artcritical.com. Thank you very much indeed, Diana, and to all the staff and academicians at this institution who've so generously hosted and partnered with us with Art Critical in, in this 10-year production. And may I say it's a cold night, so it's a dedicated audience that makes its way out. So a special thank you to you folks. And let me say also, it's always touching for me this sounds a bit like a, a rabbi or a minister, but uh, uh, it's always touching for me to see people who've been paid guests of the past coming out of interest to uh, savor the debate, and if we're lucky, join in it as well. So just a little shout out for Walter Robinson, uh, David Gross, and Christina Key, who, with my failing eyesight, are the three past review panelists I see in the audience. Who, who, if anyone is a newcomer to the panel, who's never been to the review panel in the past? Yes, ah, marvelous. Even on a cold night where a slightly thinner audience than average, 
Um, half of you are newcomers. So let me just, for your sake, um, run through the format of the evening and remind um, the rest of us what we're doing. We're going to look at a short video prepared for us by my assistant, uh, Anna Shukilo, uh, videos of a couple of the shows at a time. Uh, we will then have a discussion about those shows um, on the panel. We'll then open up to comments from the floor, and then we repeat the exercise with the remaining two <coughs> panels. And we record the event for later podcast. So you can hear at artcritical.com podcasts of most, all but two, I think, of the last 10 years of the review panel here at the National Academy. Um, you can also, at the website, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, PAFA.org, hear recordings of three years' worth of, um, well, we're in the third year, of the review panel Philadelphia, our first uh, franchise. And um, it's a pleasure to welcome. Uh, let me now introduce our guests this evening. It's a pleasure to welcome uh, Edward Epstein, who's appearing for the first time in New York, but has been a guest twice in Philadelphia. And he's also a writer for artcritical.com. Um, Edward is a freelance writer. He's, his work uh, is seen in Art in America and Art Papers. And he is uh, also uh, the director of um, Airspace, a residency program uh, for artists in Philadelphia. Sarah Douglas is newly appointed um, editor of Art News. She's on her first week back on the job after um, bringing a baby into the world. Congratulations to her on that accomplishment. Uh, she, before joining Art News, was um, uh, the editor for some years, a cultural editor uh, at the New York Observer, uh, where she also founded the um, autonomous gallerist website uh, for uh, art, uh, art reviews um, related to the New York Observer and the New York scene. And um, our third guest this evening is Lance Esplund, uh, who is an art critic uh, at the Wall Street Journal. Um, in the past, we've seen his work also at Bloomberg. Um, and uh, he was my colleague for some years on the New York Observer. Um, New York Sun, yes. Thank you for that welcome correction. Uh, there, was no there was nothing Freudian in that slip. It was just a slip. Yes, the New York Sun. Um, marvelous. Where a colleague of ours was David Gross, who uh, is um, the husband I only discovered this evening of Sarah Douglas. So everything connects. Everything connects. Well, let's see if everything connects as far as critical discourse and consensus is concerned as well. So now we're going to look at the uh, video as best we can uh, rep to represent two shows which somewhat elude video or simply are video. Yeah, right. So the generator, Marina Abramovich. Uh, here we don't get any tune. In fact, we're supposed to uh, have our senses deprived from us. I guess uh, Lance took on the responsibility of 
criticizing the seating arrangements and sound system at Luring Augustine. I, I would uh, chip in here that the blindfold didn't blind me and that the uh, earmuffs didn't uh, prevent me from hearing quite a lot. Um, and I was almost tempted to sort of start again and say, can I have two blindfolds and don't you have any earplugs? I mean, let's do this properly kind of thing. But then I thought that would be, you know, like certain characters in comedies about prisons telling the officers that they should be doing, torturing them more efficiently. Um, <laughs> this is also one of those uh, exhibitions, and, and, and the, this, there's a marvelous book that just came out. Uh, Raphael Rubinstein did this beautiful book where he collected, where he basically gives anecdotal descriptions of artworks and art projects um, in which you can see how a work of art can generate its own apocrypha in the way it's described. Um, and I, had, I was really enjoying Abramovich's work from the descriptions I was getting from students and colleagues who'd been to see it. And then there was for me somewhat the anticlimax of actually experiencing it. Um, first of all, I didn't get touched up, which I hear can happen. But um, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> did, the, did the earth move for you? What happened? Um, I, I don't know. This is a weird place to start with this, but I, uh, I was struck by when I... It's a weird place to start because I shouldn't talk about someone else's review of this show as a way of getting into it, but I was struck by how um, weird and, and sort of um, not interesting Ken Johnson's review of it was, where he talks about his experience of it, and it's kind of just like, oh, I didn't know what to do, and I I was uncomfortable, and then I sort of left, and you were just like, is this even a review? And then I thought, maybe it's not Ken Johnson's fault. It's sort of this artwork's fault. It's like, and it actually made me think that, you know, maybe you can see, like, an artwork, you can, if it's really good, it brings out good writing. Like I was thinking about Ruskin and the Tintorettes. But anyhow, that's totally an aside. But, you know, I think it's, I just want to say, I think it's really, really hard to talk about Marina Abramovich's art without sort of dealing with Marina Abramovich as a kind of like, I don't know, at a certain point, I, I had this thought that like this, this, this artwork was sort of a metaphor for what she has become in the sense that like, you're led into this space, you have this blindfold on. It's like she has become this sort of larger than life sort of charismatic figure who like we're, we're blindly led along by, I, I don't know. It just, I, I didn't have any kind of transcendent experience in it. I, I was, um, I stayed and I waited to be affected by it and I, and I wasn't and, and in fact, I think it did it, in the same way, you know, we're, we were talking about how Ragnar's piece was you know, about time. I think this this artwork actually, in addition to, you know, there's the sensory deprivation aspect and it's, I think it's supposed to bring on a meditative state. I think it's also about the ways in which we experience space. So if you take away sight and sound, you know, we're, how do we sort of understand the contours of this space? And, you know, you can go feel where the wall is and, you know, hope you don't run into another person. And I actually, unfortunately, was reminded of a, of a piece, and I don't know if anyone here experienced this particular piece, but it was, to me, such an incredible, incredible experience, which was um, David Hammond's um, in Ace Gallery, when Ace Gallery used to be down on Hudson Street. It was just vast, vast space, and he made this 
artwork where the space was completely dark and you went inside and you were given this little blue flashlight and you walked around and there would be other people in the space walking around with their flashlights. And I, that, I don't know, it was just an amazing, amazing piece. And you would be going into these spaces and you'd see other people. And to me, it was much more sort of open and generous and you could see other people. Like, I have to say Marina's piece, it made me uncomfortable, but not in a way that I felt was I don't know, to use the title of the piece, like generative of, of anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's yeah. maybe not as articulate as I wanted it to be. But, but it's, but more than Ken, but that's okay. I mean, but maybe Ken Johnson is, is, is wanting to convey the anticlimactic nature that's of this project by, yeah. so, so it's a, it's a, it's a kind of well, as, as is yours, a well-crafted way of getting across the anticlimactic aspect, Lance? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I had a very different experience, but um, I, I almost didn't do it on principle. <clears throat> you know, just decided I'm not going to be a guinea pig here, I'm not going to sign a waiver, you know, I'm not going to do this or that. And then I decided, okay, after talking to people, um, I'm still, you know, young enough to be able to do this. So I decided to do it. Um, but I, and I think I have to talk a little bit personally to be able to talk about this, this piece, and also because it's a very subjective experience. Um, it's going to be different for everyone, even though there are similarities. Um, but I used, I, I practiced a lot of martial arts in my life, and um, when, I had an experience when I walked into this show um, that reminded me of an experience I'd had that was related to martial arts, which was that, um, and we used to do a lot of meditation with martial arts too, so I, I think for me it had nothing to do with that, with what we did in meditation, which was about emptying our minds and emptying ourselves so that we could become full. I mean, I don't think it's possible to do that, to have that kind of relaxation when you're in a space where you know nothing about what's going on around you and you have no sense of who might bump into you, what might be there, um, but one of the things they used to tell us is if you ever lose your sight or you become blinded in a fight, then to keep your feet on the floor and move your feet like, you know, like this so that you're not picking up your foot because you don't want to step off a cliff or something and you want to be able to touch something and to keep your hands out. So as soon as I walked in, I remembered an experience I'd had where I, the only time I ever had to do that, and that was when I went to a party in Williamsburg back in the 80s. And I'd never been to the Williamsburg before. This is like 86, maybe. I just recently moved to New York. And we pulled into the station that was totally foreign. And um, I thought, as I stood there at the window waiting to go to this party, you know, I was going there to go to a party, so I felt like I was being punished for wanting to go to this party, um, that as we pulled into the station, I th where I, which I'd never seen before, it suddenly was weird. And I didn't know why. And as I got off the train with other people, I noticed, oh, the reason is the, the, it's completely dark. None of the lights were on in the station. And um, as the train pulled away, it got completely, we were completely blinded. And so here I was thinking, oh, right, run your feet along the platform and move your hands around so that you don't step off into the tracks. And somebody heard my feet moving behind me and said, what's that? You know, like, oh my God, thinking that I was like some creature coming at, at them because my feet were going, Ch -ch 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 -ch. you know, okay. So 
So I was, I, I'd totally forgotten that experience and then walked into the, um, this generator show and, and it came back to me. And so then I was like, oh, I, so I started moving my feet like this so I didn't bump into it because they told you to move slowly. And they also tell you when you go in, um, go meet your neighbors. That's what yeah, the person said to me, something along those lines. And I thought, I'd never even, never even occurred to me to go meet anybody in there. My, my feeling was like, don't get hurt, you know? Like, you know, don't get stepped on, don't get my something poked out. Like, you know, I was in there like this, you know, like, um, and, and, you know, and also don't touch anybody inappropriately. Like the, they tell you on the subway. Yes, by accident. Like, you know, if somebody touches you inappropriately, that's, you know, the close proximity is no excuse for, un, you know, okay. So inappropriate behavior. So, so then I just finally found the wall and I kind of went along the wall. And of course, I think I wasn't the only one who had found comfort on the wall. And as soon, and then I met a very friendly woman um, who immediately grabbed my hand and immediately started touching me and I was like this. Anyway, I mean, it progressed <laughs> where we, we, uh, we touched each other's hands, we, we, we went up each other's leg. Um, we, we actually, you know, it was just like, oh, okay, why not? I'll give into this. Like, she seems safe enough, you know? So, so then um, we started, I started dancing with her and I realized, oh, you can't really waltz without music, especially when you can't hear it. So I had that experience, but we, I turned around a little bit, we danced. Um, we uh, gave each other little back rubs. Um, we, I, I massaged her eyeballs, she massaged mine. We kind of did a thing where it was like, oh, you do this, I'll do that then, okay? So she went up against the wall, I kind of moved her arms like this. And, but also, you're, I was very uncomfortable at the same time and we were both sweating and kind of nervous and shaky. Um, because, but it's very, it was very intimate and it was very, on, in some ways it was kind of erotic, but it was also very, very tense because you realize there are all these gallerinas standing around watching you. It's bright lights everywhere and you're being filmed and you signed a waiver. So, <clears throat> And I'm married. <laughs> so anyway, we, it kind of progressed a little bit from there. Um, we eventually sat down um, on the floor. A goat came over. Uh, no, anyway, never mind. But she actually put my hands on her breasts at one point, okay? So, and I didn't do anything. I didn't, okay? I did not have sex with that woman, okay? <laughs> but I did just stand there, but, but I'm, just, I'm just saying, and we gave each other hugs. It was a very, it was a cathartic experience in some ways. I do not think that it was a good work of art. I don't think it really had anything to do with that. In terms of heightening awareness, in terms of throwing you into the mix like this, I think there's power to it possibly for certain people. I had an interesting, uh, you know, encounter. encounter. It was an encounter. But beyond that, um, again, I feel it's a little, um, it's cheating on some level. Like, I don't, like, I think that there's, it's a false sense. The idea that it's heightening awareness to the point of getting you to a, a state of meditation, I think is, is totally a miss. Um, you know, it's, it's, might as well be hyperbole around it because it, I don't think it can do that at all. Anyway, I've talked too long about it. But um, that was my encounter. Can, can I, can I talk? <laughs> <laughs> You bet. We wanted we want an experience at least as juicy from uh, from our visitor from Philadelphia. I didn't have anything uh, like that experience, but I thought it was you that I was with. <laughs> He's a different my, cup size. Yes. Yeah. My, yeah. Right. Um, so uh, 
my experience was similar in the sense that um, it wasn't about meditation at all. It was about how to get around this room. And by the way, I got very scared when I saw the picture and discovered there were columns in that room because I really probably narrowly missed, you know, bashing my head. Were you running? No, no, but, you know, I the was... The padded, the padded. Well, <laughs> I, I, I actually did run into a wall at one point, mm -hmm. uh, but I found myself thinking of uh, the way a prisoner would, um, you know, in a, in a dark cell, like one of these people who's being held captive somewhere and trying to figure out how long and how wide the room was and, um, you know, focused on the sounds that were filtering through the not-so-perfect um, uh, headset that they put on and um, thinking about, well, how thick would the walls have to be in order to completely block out sound because that would be better. Um, so, you know, I was thinking a lot, a lot of pedestrian thoughts that didn't really have to do with meditation. Um, but the overwhelming sense that I, that I had was, you know, coming into the place, I saw lockers. I thought, oh, no, you know, am I going to have to get undressed or something? And then they had these, um, uh, you know, guards slash um, chaperones, really, um, who, who brought you into the place. And it seems like there was something mildly coercive about it. So, you know, the biggest thought that I had was, well, what am I supposed to be doing in here? And if I don't do that, will I get in trouble? Um, and, you know, if I start talking or something, are they going to kick me out? So, you know, there seemed, it seemed, there was something slightly oppressive about it. Yeah, that's, that, that, that seemed what would accord with my, it wasn't my experience at all, but your experience would accord with my general feelings and views about Marina Abramovich, the Yugoslav general's daughter who uh, endures and has others endure. And it's, it's, it's a very grim, austere, um, somewhat totalitarian and self-important view of the world. I mean, it certainly accords with the way she's re reported to have behaved at the um, uh, LACMA um, no, the, the uh, L.A. MoMA, L.A. MoCA, uh, Jeffrey Deitch's old museum, uh, benefit with the delegated performers. But, yeah, I, I just felt I had to give it due diligence because um, I, I'm here and I, we've chosen this show to talk about. And, but as soon as I got there, I thought, well, what am I going to do here? I mean, how, how, it'll be recorded if I leave after two minutes. Um, and, and by the way, uh, Lance, you can go to a Flickr account, I believe, and look up the day and the time that you were there. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> I, I, we are. <laughs> In fact, we're opening a book here this evening. This is how Art Critical and the National Academy really makes its money. Um, we're offering odds of three to one that it was Marina Abramovich whose breasts and waltzes uh, the art critic of the Wall Street Journal was fondling and dancing with. So um, uh, we'll... She was, she you don't take this, do you? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I was actually... My, my mother told us a story that she went... When she first visited um, Liebeskind's Jewish Museum in Berlin, which is this... Um, either genius or kitsch, depending on your point of view, um, uh, expressionist, deconstructionist 
museum of, which uh, ends up in a little pit where you sort of zigzag your way down into this unescapable pit. And, and she says that, and she, she, that she, when she was there, uh, a, a group of Israeli schoolboys was visiting, and um, she is very proud of the fact that their, their first instinct was to see how you could escape, to see how you could get out. And um, so after I just sort of fumbled around a bit and thought, what, how should I, I, I should have prepared, how am I going to actually use my time when I visit this installation, knowing what I did about it, um, I thought, I can't just stand here like a lemon. Uh, I actually did the opposite of what your masters told you to do, which is actually thought, well, let's see what this lack of visual perception does to one's proprioception. Uh, and I actually did some Tai Chi moves, actually lifting my feet and above, uh, off the ground to see how very different the experience is if you don't have uh, your senses about you. Um, so I we should also add that whenever you want to leave, you just raise your hand yes. and then the an attendant comes over and takes you off the leads you out or leads you around and then leads you out. But then I did the um, the, the Jewish Museum thing instead, which is uh, uh, well fact of, of, of test well first of all I was testing because I found this column and thought that was very interesting and then I thought I would test to see if I if I walked from the column just straight I would come to a wall which I did and then I thought how good is my sense of movement? If I turn around and walk back, will I hit the same column again? And interestingly, I didn't. So I was learning some very minor sort of uh, psychology things about, uh, and, uh, about, about whatever, movement in the dark. And then I thought, okay, how big is this room? Can I get out? So I crawled my way around the room and I evidently came to the exit because I was then physically obstructed by somebody. Um, and I thought, okay, uh, you're just another visitor and I'm in your way. So I tried to get around him or her and then it became more and more, no, you are not leaving. And then, um, <laughs> and then the person put her arm around me and held a hand just as, it, as she had at the very beginning as, as we saw uh, on the video and led me back into the middle of the room and deposited me in, in, in the middle of the room saying, you know, it, I felt then suddenly like uh, that character in the, is it, is it Truman, the Truman Show? That, no, uh, that, that, uh, that this entire set has been constructed to be my universe and it was cheating to have found that actually it's a stage set with an exit. So I, I was led back in. Actually, the, the thing that I found, you know, a little bit, I guess, disappointing about it or just, is that and I guess this is the most obvious thing to, to say about her work like, these days, but the, the thing that always appealed to me about her art is the kind of this raw, extreme quality to it, those early performances. And whereas this piece, to me, had a kind of like new agey, like 70s sort of therapeutic, like one of the things I noticed is there was a water cooler next to the lockers, and it was sort of like the water cooler really, it was like, it's like a spa or a gym or something. Or And then after you came out, there was a, in fact, I brought one of them with me. Um, there was a piece of paper that you, you know, it said, share your experience in the box below and you would write, you know, and, and then put it in this, deposit your, your thoughts in this box. And I, I don't know, it's, it seems so distant from some of these very affecting performances that she was doing earlier in her career. And even some of them more recently, like with the, the bones and this, you know, 
or you know that 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 sort of the at MoMA when you know they had her show and there was the, the the two naked figures you had to walk past. This is just I don't know. There was something about New Age therapy there that just I didn't. It she's it didn't she's do going it tame on us. Do you think? Um, she says it's her ultimate work. She's yeah. needed to prepare, needed everything she's done in the past to get to this. This is her uh, her total work but of actually, art. Actually, I, I wrote that down because. Um, mm. Wait, what and she has it? that quote about uh, the, you know, this being the, the institute you know, of the and future. I, I can read that because it said, yes. she said, it took me 25 years to have the courage, the concentration, and the knowledge to come to this, the idea that there would be art without any objects, solely in exchange between the performer and the public. I mean, that there would be art without any objects. I mean, I was thinking like Eve Klein did that when, you know, with an empty gallery, and there was much more of a sense of humor there, and this is like, there's something so ponderous about it, and sort of, yeah, self-important, and, but again, I, I don't, when I say that, I, I mean, I don't mean to negate, I, I think she's an incredibly important artist, but I do think she has become something else in recent years, um, and and I think it's worthwhile to mention that when this show opened, there were you know lines around the block to to get into this, and there is this real fervor to participate in what she's doing, and and actually those I believe that those um, those chaperones um, are trainees in her performance program. So there's also this kind of like acolyte aspect to what she's doing, and it, it's almost like. It's, it's like every generation gets the Joseph Boyce figure it deserves or whatever, and she is ours somehow. And what does that say about this moment in art? And, you know, it's like there's the marina that was doing those, you know, incredibly raw performances, and the marina of today is the marina that's dancing with Jay-Z, you know, in Pace Gallery, right? Like... I think, I think the object uh, was the social situation, which um, was fairly inescapable. And for David, it was literally inescapable. <laughs> and and you're, you're absolutely right. This is the this is the the pioneer of of endurance and performance. A pioneer of performance, joining the gang of of relational aesthetics. Then, um, but Tino Segal does it so much better, right? Don't we all think? Perhaps is this is this her taking a new direction? Is this the culmination of her work? Is this the dissipation of her work? Lance, can you? Well, she started the foundation in, what is it, Hudson, I think, right? Um, where she seems to be moving more into a kind of guru teacher uh, position, which maybe because as you age, you might, I'm not saying anything about her age, but that she wants to pass on something and, and she's trying to I don't know if I read this, but something about trying to heighten the awareness of the viewer, um, a certain kind of self-awareness. or so. so I think that maybe she's, I see it possibly as an attempt to um, kind of to force other, force viewers into a place of, of connectedness or awareness that she feels she has only gotten through doing these kinds of performances. Like, okay, now I'm going to make you do this performance, you know, like... I, I can't, I can't pee for you. You know, you've got to do it yourself. Like, like I'm pulling out as a, as a performer and passing on the performance itself. I, it, it's an interesting idea. I don't think it necessarily is working, but she does have acolytes. She does have students. She does. She has a, a 
Yeah, I noticed, I noticed in my evening they were all um, young, attractive, brunette women of a sort of slightly vaguely Mediterranean look. I don't know if she's going out recruiting mini marinas, but um, I think that's a good moment to bring in our, our audience to give us comments on either um, uh, Kiartansen or Abramovich. Um, uh, can I, actually, can I say yes, one more thing about the course. marina thing? It actually wasn't that long ago. I think it was 2002 um, when she had that show at Sean Kelly uh, where she was living in the gallery. That's right, on that platform. Yeah, yes. and that was really intense. Naked. Like that, and that, mm. you know, the, the, I guess the common ground is she is trying to make the visitor uncomfortable. And, and in that sense, in like with that exhibition, it was you were uncomfortable because you were in her living space, literally like watching her. I believe you could actually even watch her go to the bathroom. Like she, everything was on view and it was, you know, it was this strange thing where like she, she was so completely comfortable with it that you were made uncomfortable because you're sort of, if you stayed in there, were you a voyeur, you know? And with this, it's like she's, she's trying to get a reaction out of you as well, you know, but in a different way. And I'd like to just add something to that because I, I feel like it's a problem with a lot of art right now and also a lot of art reviewers and a lot of um, positions that people take in terms of trying to, to, put this idea onto art that the, that the chief focus of an artist's job is to challenge the viewer or to get a reaction out of the viewer. And I think it's a misunderstanding of modernism and what happened in the 19th century and the, you know, the fact that it did, that, we, that artists did get a rise out of people, but now that's become as if that's the only or the major focus for an artist. Uh, but, right, but it's, but it's not. I mean, I think it was a misunderstanding. I think it's been a... a uh, it's become a cliche, and it's also just not true. Um, it's a misunderstanding, but it's forced a whole generation, or maybe even two or three, of artists to think that that is his or her purpose. You know, that I'm do only doing something if I can get a rise out of, shock somebody, do something on that level. And I don't know if this speaks to maybe something about that kind of performance, but you know, if I don't make you uncomfortable, I'm not doing my job kind of thing. Well, if I don't make you, know, you want to change your life, I'm not doing my job, which is... Uh, sort of uh, the, the amb existentialist, ambitious um, notion of art. Um, but, it, but, it, but you're right, that, it, but that, that's, that's a big debate. But I mean, it's, it's, good that, it's good that both these shows, in a way, make us think about those kinds of issues. So let's get some response from our audience on, on the two shows then. Um, there's a mic that will be going around. Yes. And um, um, why don't we start with Abramovich, as that's what we spoke of most recently. Who else has been to the Abramovich and, and has any insights to, to what we, uh, wants to share any of their, um, uh, not, not necessarily the full history of what happened to them there, but, but their, um, uh, their conclusion of. Hi, thank you to, for being here. I had the same, exactly the same experience that you, David. Exactly the same. I was trying to figure out how the my relationship with the architecture, and then when I figured out that I could find the exit, because also I'm Jewish, <laughs> and then someone took me again. And this was very strange, because I said, oh, now I finished, no? Because I, I, I figured out myself where is the exit, 
and someone take me again and say, okay, let's try again, figure out how this space, and then I found the columns and I found someone else. But, but it was the same experience like yours. This was very, very funny. Yes, I think we both realized that trying to escape is like uh, gambling against the house, really, yeah. Because <laughs> we're, we're blindfolded and they're not. So careful who you try to escape from. Some, some other, um, yes, uh, lady in pink. Oh, hello, okay. Yeah, it's like you, you oh, yes. Okay, auto exclusion, fine. Uh, but yes, the bias. Uh, I, I wonder if the question is, is there a difference between Marina Abramovich, the person, and Marina Abramovich, the artist? Because when I met her in 1992, I guess, indeed, she made me feel uncomfortable. And her task was to make me and anybody else feel uncomfortable. That was her personality. So I wonder then, is it possible to be an artist and have that be different from being yourself, or is it possible to have the two at the same time? But and I think I think no area of art gets at that, you know, better than performance art, you know, and that's that's such a huge aspect of performance art is the, is this is it's exactly all about the artist as a as a as a as a presence, right? As a as a figure. Um, because obviously there's no, we're not drawing a distinction between you know the object that's created and the artist. It's all one and the same with a lot of performance art. So I think that's that's really interesting, and she she more than anyone else really raises that question. And you could almost say that that's, you know, it's 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 almost like when people talk about Damien Hirst and some of his like shenanigans with the market, and some people will make the argument that somehow that's part of the content of his art. This stuff that he's this manipulation of the art market. And it's like with Marina, I feel like her charismatic presence, that is part of the art. It's absolutely part of it. It's like, you know, but is there is there a Marina apart from Marina? I, I think that's a fascinating question, actually. Yes, the, the question at the back, Peter is saying, is, is it's, um, Michael is asking, it, 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 do we need to separate the real Marina from the artist that we are experiencing? Um, it, it's, it's, most of us haven't met and won't meet the great Marina any more than we will her friends, Lady Gaga or whoever, but does that matter? I mean, we're, we've got the work, and the work is what we're... But then, but, but it's funny because you just actually you just went into a whole other dimension of it, which is that now she's actually a celebrity. Like, she's not even just an artist anymore. Like, she actually, you know, the, I think Lady Gaga has, like, mentioned her in interviews, and she just has a much, much bigger Well, I spent some time with profile. her um, out of the, you know, art world. I thought she was perfectly pleasant. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, I didn't find her to be off-putting or anything. I mean, she didn't try to make me uncomfortable. I didn't... Uh, so I don't know, but, uh, but she's a performer. Uh, well, a performer is one thing and a performance artist is another. And so uh, we're, we're looking at um, 
I didn't see her perform, although there are photographs of her in uh, the generator, but I experienced the generator, and that's, that is a, a, a performance art uh, in, which, in which the viewer performs. But also with her, it's like her whole um, personal life and, and history is so part and parcel of her artistic project in the sense that she was, you know, once personally involved with her very, very close collaborator. And there's a whole kind of story there that's kind of adds another dimension to, to the work and the performances. And so it, it's a, it's it's it is difficult to untangle that stuff. But it's also just interesting to think about it. I, I, I don't know. I. I... <laughs> I agree, but I think almost any artist has a biography, and one, once one knows the biography, it could become interesting. Then there are some artists who very deliberately make their life, their legend, uh, integral to the work. And you mentioned Abramovich in relation to Boyce. Well, Boyce really folds his mythos into the work in, inextricably, uh, whereas I think with uh, Abramovich, we're, we're falling into a trap of journalism and that, in fairness to her, she, uh, her story is fascinating, but she hasn't really imposed her story on us in any specific uh, works that she's done. I think the works have their an integrity and should be, should, should, should be judged on their own standing. Anyway, there are some hands going up here, so let's uh, wait for the mic, if you would, um, and... Um, and, and do bring in uh, Kjartansson as well, if you, if you so choose. Do you think the experience would have been more powerful and effective if you did not have the choice of raising your hand and leaving, if it became too overwhelming? What would be the alternative? You had to stay until they let you leave. Well, that would just be... Yeah, but I, I think you're absolutely right. That's so much a part of it, is that you you can raise your hand that's like i mean maybe this is a maybe this is a little go, like off off color to say but it's like in in like snm right like what's your safe sound like you're supposed to be able to like you have a safe word or something or whatever like banana ice cream yeah right <laughs> yeah you know like if it's i think that gives you this assurance that someone will get me out of here like if i you know, do this, like, I'm done, I'm not participating in this anymore. I had the urge to take off the blindfold, like, but then because I knew I could raise my hand, I didn't have to do that. So I think that's totally a part of what she's doing that she, but she's, giving she's giving you a choice, the choice to leave, yeah. Otherwise, it would be like an EST program, and it would be sort of, there really would be lawsuits, wouldn't there? Yeah, let's, let's, quick, let's quicken our pace if we can, because we've got a couple more shows to look at. Yes, Candice Medley. Um, I have two questions, one for each show. Uh, the first one is, um, I haven't seen the show at Sean Kelly, but I, every time I hear it described, I think of the, was that Anthony Gormley who did the show a few years ago with the interior, with the mist, and, and when people oh, are describing uh, Anthony this McCall, show. Oh, um, Anthony McCall. I think, mm. oh, okay, yeah. And I think... Didn't, didn't Sean, I mean, this reminds me of a show. Oh, John, it was at Sean it was Kelly, at Sean but it was Kelly, Anthony yeah. McCall, not okay, Anthony Gormley. Yeah, mm. um, and it was a, and this was a show that I did see that was, a, the interior of the gallery was filled with a very dense mist. And you Dry ice, see yes. where you were going, and so 
it was a similar experience where like kind of bodies would come into view and you were sort of trying to make your way through this space. And it was an, it was an interesting experience. I didn't think I would like it before when I'd heard about it. And then I went and it was very interesting. But there, there was something about a show happening not so long ago, maybe five years ago, that sounded very similar in its experience. Um, so there's that. I was wondering if any of you had, had seen that show. Um, and then for Ragnar's show, I just have a question. Like, I didn't realize that this had been um, a performance in the Dome at PS1. And it's just a question, should it be a video? I mean, is it, I, I, I'm not, you know, should it just be the performance in the Dome? And that's the experience of kind of hearing the song in its different iterations over the course of several hours, so. My understanding, if I can answer that last question, is that the performance at PSM One was actually staged for the purpose, yeah, of, making for the purpose of making this video. This video, yeah. Um, so it was not the performance; it was the material out of which what we get was got. But thank you for that. Those anecdotes. Yes, I think uh, we'll take one or two more. Yes, uh, front row here, yeah. second row. It's interesting about Marina's performance that when you go in and you turn off a couple of your senses, so in a way you're being asked to enter the state of pure myth of the artist, of your inside Marina, sort of like Fantastic Voyage, the movie, you know, and you're, you're in this thing and, um, it just feels like this is a persistent um, need in the culture for a while now, where like uh, Philip Pavia and the artists in the club in the 1950s, uh, Pavia wrote in his journal that their big breakthrough was that they realized that the personality of the artist was like of dominant importance and it feels like this idea has been with us for a long time and it feels tired now. And maybe uh, it's refreshing to hear Sarah say that uh, it's not, maybe it's not Ken Johnson's fault. Like I've never heard anyone say that about Ken Johnson, <laughs> but. Not lately. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe he's sounding the first bell on a cultural fatigue with having to bring the myth of the artist into our eye all the time, everything we're looking at in contemporary art. So I, I thought the one thing that she did that was, that made this piece a little better was that she subtracted herself from, from the piece. Um, she did the other piece, The Artist is Present, yes. where it really was about her. And actually, I yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing when 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 you said that. And I think one thing that's that's interesting in terms of just the arc of her work is it, it, there were the perform those those performances, those historic performances that we associate with her, where it's these intense you know things where she's in you know it's painful and it's durational and it's just her and we're watching her do it. Then there's you know the artist is present where she it's about her in relation to you know the viewer and then i think she did something at the serpentine where it was similar to this but she's leading you through the space and now she has people leading you so it's this slow subtraction of herself from her work so in a way that 
you kind of have to hand it to her because that may reflect an awareness that she's become larger than life, so she's kind of taking herself out of the work slowly. And that, I think, is interesting, you know? Anyhow. Cool. Um, I, I'm sure we're all bursting with more to say, but I think we do need to move on, and uh, we'll, unfortunately, panel have to quicken our pace a little uh, in looking at the, the next two shows. Thank you. Well, Sarah, history, war, the Bible, big themes, profound themes. Is Tommy Hartung a big, profound artist? Actually, I, I have to say, it, it's funny how you, well, I guess it makes sense how you grouped these. Um, because I, I really, really enjoyed his show. And I, there's so much to say uh, about this work, but um, the aspect of it that I was most interested in is the the film, yes, there are all these big themes in the film and political themes, and it's, it's a really jarring film, and there's some tough stuff in it. There's... Um, I'm sure, I, I don't know if everyone is familiar with the story of this man who's self-immolated on the National Mall, but there's a, at, at a certain point, there's actually a, a, a cell phone video that someone made of this, of this man setting himself on fire. And so there's some really tough material in this, in this film. But it also, it's interspersed with these kind of amazing, like montages of, uh, of, of his sort of sculptural practice. It's a, that's the aspect of it that I found so fascinating, is that the film is really, it's, it's almost about his practice as a sculptor, as a maker of objects. And then you have these objects sort of around that are so deeply kind of immersed in the history of, not in the history of art, in the history of outsider art. There's sort of Hans Bellmer in there. There's this kind of Cindy Sherman aspect even. There's, it, and I, I just think that with both of these exhibitions in different ways, they sort of remind me of why I enjoy looking at art, and that's a kind of, the, the way I always think of it is, it's, it's a transformational thing. It's transforming materials into something. It's like that um, Jasper Johns, I think it was, that, that said um, that art is like, you take an object, you do something to it, and you do something else to it. And there's so many artists, they just go to the first do something and they don't do the second one. And both of these artists, like absolutely, they take that next step. It's, it's I mean, and I, I would just say like another exhibition in town that, that, that's like so masterful in that way is the, Mar the Martin Purrier show. Like you see it and you, you sort of say, this is why like I, I go and see exhibitions. But anyhow, that was a bit all over the place. But. Um, it sounds like two thumbs up in the movie-going uh, yeah, uh, sense you, of it. Yeah, if you want to put it, if you want to reduce it to that, yes. But uh, Edward, um, uh, I just repeat the question in a way. I mean, these are really big themes, and uh, Sarah talks about taking the taking the next step. Um, is there profundity in this work, or is it is it is it simply an artist taking uh, profound uh, themes and and not accessing their profundity? Yeah, I didn't have the same response as, as Sarah. I um, uh, found this less than profound, and um, there was a lot of frenetic energy in it, and, um, you know, he was doing a lot of things uh, that, to me, didn't necessarily hold together. Um, and um, calling, calling this uh, the Bible, um, 
you know, whatever you think about the Bible, I mean, the Bible has stories in it, and I had trouble uh, finding stories in it, except for uh, there was this political narrative that seemed to be about, you know, disturbing current events. But I... His next show is going to be called Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Right. Might, might as well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, but actually that, it's, it's funny, everything you're saying is what I think is so great about it, is that you, you look at the Bible, there's so many stories in there that just don't make sense, and it's cruel justice, and it's just cruel, I mean, you know, and, and, but the, and the frenetic quality, to me, that is what make, made it so affecting, is it's kind of like it had this nightmare kind of non-logic logic to it that actually that there's, there's a lot of that in the, in the Bible, and the Bible is a scary document. And, um, and I thought that he got, he got at something that's very difficult to articulate, and that's what made it so powerful to me, is I did feel like I was in, in the midst of a nightmare with sort of flashing imagery, and, but it was, to me, very well executed. The Bible, of course, is a compendium canonized by different faiths into being a book, which is obviously multiple texts with not only multiple authors, but multiple intentions and and coming out of such different genres and um, that is full of extreme acts like a father being asked to you know kill his son and you have a man who you know self-immolates in the national mall and i think what he's getting at is that these undercurrents of gruesome violence in our culture today in you know when i was watching it i was thinking about these beheadings that are happening now and just that that kind of visceral frightening aspect of current world events. He gets at it in a way that's totally non-linear, that's totally non-narrative, and somehow though there is a story in there, but you, but it's, a, it's not one that is, a, is, a, is told in a straight way, and I think it's a really accomplished piece in that way. So Lance, uh, is, is Tommy Hartung a good example of the kind of artist who has misinterpreted the vision of art, which is to shock and unsettle us? You you gave us you, you gave us. Um, uh, I I said uh, yeah that, that that's not an artist's job actually to shock right. Anyway. Um, so it, it seems from what Sarah is telling us that that uh, that that uh, that, that, that um, this this exhibition reminds us of the the, the the violence and 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 anarchy that's in the Bible and also of the <coughs> mythic quality of what's happening in our own times. Yeah, I don't. Um, I think for me there there was a serious tone problem in the piece. Uh, I, I saw the whole thing. Um, one of the uh, one aspect of it is that somebody is actually sitting in the gallery and doing things. Um, I actually thought it was a mannequin for a long time sitting next to me, um, wearing blue coveralls, and there's a mask on the person's face, and it uh, it's kind of like looks like a prop from the film with glittery hair and. And then he started to do things, which kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, He's but, a graduate of the Marina uh, War, yeah, maybe, uh, yeah. Academy. That's I mean, it was a little bit like a kind of a, a serial killer, but without the weapon. And so then it was, yeah, you know, he, he wrapped like himself in twine wrap, at one yeah. time, and he put put two plastic, two can, uh, fake candles out. But, you know, he just started pulling things out of his pocket, and I thought he was a mannequin. But um, kept my eye on him. Anyway. Oh yeah, well we danced, um, but no, I think that there was a tone problem with the piece. For me, the freneticism was um, a bit of a ploy. I felt like 
um, you know, it's like the thing just really wasn't holding water for me as a as a complete hour long film, and the kinds of things that I felt like the freneticism of it was a constant to try to to link things together, and it it also, it, I mean, look, Frank. The, there are a couple of things for me going on. Like, I'm really getting sick of installation art that has a lot of colored cellophane in it and glitter and, and, and children's toys. And, you know, I just feel like I'm looking at my childhood. It's like, oh, more Barbie fucking dolls. You know, like, how many more times do I... It's like when you go to an antique store and you see all the toys from your childhood. And, and I feel like so often now I go into ex exhibitions and I see a rehashing of of this stuff from the 1960s and 70s. And it had a kind of faux psychedelic quality too. So, so for me, it was more... Well, no, he comes a little, I, I don't think, yeah, I mean, not the stuffed animal thing, but the, the, the dolls, the, the plastic quality of it, the, and, and in terms of the, the tone issue that I have with it, is that I don't think it, it, I don't think it knew what tone it wanted to be. I don't think it ever came to a place of coherence. Um, so that it threw a lot of things at me, whether it was somebody setting himself on fire or um, the dead body of this uh, gay man who had been stoned to death or people hiding from, uh, you know, being attacked or, or then little puppets and dolls and stuff. And I think that the, the range of going, the swinging of going from toys and childhood stuff and, and yes, this gets into the Mike Kelly thing a little bit, but to the seriousness of people setting themselves on fire who are Vietnam vets who can't handle the, the, the fact that they had to deal with napalm during the war, it, it, for me it's a little glib. And I don't think the artist is really taking a position that where I know what the artist means. It's, and so I feel like I'm just kind of being assaulted by all of this stuff and, and yet I don't know the position of the artist except that he's throwing all this stuff at me. And, and I really feel, and I'm not saying there has to be some kind of clear narrative content, but I do feel like there should be more of a center um, but again, that's that's exactly why I thought it was successful is because to me it mirrors a situation in which there is no center. Right, but art cannot be, just because there's chaos in the world doesn't mean that art can't be chaos because there's chaos. Like art has to have its, art is a form. You know, art has to have a, a it has to have a, a shape. You know, it has to be controlled. I disagree, I disagree. Or, or if it or is, than anything, if, you know, if it is going to embody chaos, it should, it should orchestrate it in a way that it gives us the, the catharsis of going into and coming out of that chaos or, or acknowledging the, the, uh, the extreme violence of juxtaposition. It seemed to me there was something sophomoric, uh, Edward, about his collisions of uh, very profound goings-on visually and banal music, or of, uh, uh, or the other way around, of um, uh, a kind of uh, sacred chanting with silly sounds, uh, silly, silly visions and pictures. Uh, and it, it's, it, it, uh, the, the anarchy here seemed to be that of somebody just um, wanting to take on incredibly big themes and actually not having a vision to to license him to go to those places. I, uh, for me, the, the 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 experience of an artist actually leading me to a greater appreciation than I've ever had before of. Ryan Tricartin is probably <laughs> a sign that something is very wrong going on in this show. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I think Ryan Tricartin is. Ryan Tricartin set the gold standards well, of, Ryan's of a, a prankster and, uh, uh, messing around with crap. And um, uh, but this guy wants to throw in the Bible on top of it. Um, it it seems I I need to. I went twice. I didn't enjoy it, evidently, but I feel I need to go again because if somebody as intelligent as Sarah is getting this experience from it that I'm missing, um, I need to really know why I'm being so I'm going back to the Abramovich. Right. <laughs> but that's, well, we know but, why you're going back to the Abramovich, but that's... Uh, maybe it's a... F but I think it's a function of, of looking at all these shows and, you know, it's somewhat artificial. I mean, but... You know, you curate the selection of this, I assume, carefully. And I think that we can't help, I can't help but think now of these shows in relation to one another. And, but I think, so let's do that for a second, okay? okay. The, the Marina piece, it's like, say what you will about this Tommy Hartung, you know, they didn't, okay, maybe you don't think it was successful, but I, to me, I, every frame of that was very, you could tell it like a lot of thought went into it and a lot of sort of work and a lot of contemplation and whether or not you think it was successful. To me, that, those, that barrage of images and the open-ended quality, I found very affecting. And I could, to me, I could sense a lot of thought having been put into it. And, you know, when you say like, and it's like Ryan Tricartin, but he throws the Bible in. I happen to think that, I, I mean, I like Ryan Tricartin's work. I, I don't think all of it's successful. I think when it is successful, he gets at, again, something that you can't quite articulate, but it, it's part of the way we live today. I think he's tapped into something. Like, I, it, it, I think it's a real project. I think that what Tommy Hartung is doing is a real project. And it, I, I see this piece, and yeah, it's not a masterpiece, but I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does next because I think he's a thoughtful artist. I think he, he, he is taking on the big themes and the fact that, you know, that he's throwing the Bible in on top of it, as you say, he, I think he's gotten to you. And I, I think, you know, maybe that's a good thing that, you know, that he's able to do that. Oh, I'm afraid he's, there are legions of artists who get to me by irritating me and making me think they need to go back to art school and start again. I'm afraid that's not in itself a, a, a staggering moral achievement. But um, so, so I just w want to say that um, a certain part of this um, seemed vaguely familiar to me. I was watching it and I said, ah, I know what it is. It's SpongeBob. Um, it's this you know, weird combination of... There's a cultural reference there that an Englishman needs helping with. Right. What, who, who is SpongeBob? SpongeBob SquarePants is like something that kids of a certain age watch for many years, my 15-year-old daughter being one of them. Right. And it's really kind of annoying, um, but it has a certain method to it. And that is, um, you know, juxtaposition of things that are wildly different in scale mm. and, and material. Yeah. Um, but David that, Sally that, did that rather they, well. I mean, right. so, so is it, are we approaching this formally or are we approaching this spiritually? I mean, it seems to me that um, formally it's uh, a, a, a redux of happenings from the 1950s, but without the energy and the originality. But um, surely we're not, this is not a formal exercise. Uh, oh, nicely handled, well executed, we look forward to seeing what you do next, Tommy. I mean, that's not, that's not what this is about. This is somebody who's taken on, this is somebody who's taken chance from, from the synagogue uh, and put it with um, uh, uh, Chelsea or uh, Bradley Manning's uh, statements uh, with little doilies squirting around with um, kind of 
uh, Hans Belmer Sarah Luke, via Sarah Lucas dolls sprawled over here and some lost performance artist. This is somebody taking on really big themes who, who, who can't, can't handle them. I, I, so it so just seems to me a spectacular you, failure. You feel like he's just kind of taken a bunch of these things and mixed them up together and just... There may there there. may be some method in there may be there may be some he he no doubt had an intention but there's no intentionality in this mush that I'm seeing that's that's my verdict I'm afraid so so to to finish what I was saying about SpongeBob SpongeBob so sorry SpongeBob is is not something that you'd use words like formal and spiritual in in talking about it because it really deploys these things just to sort of make um, sophomoric jokes. so I think maybe what you're responding to is the fact that he's put that stuff together with, you know, uh, Hebrew music uh, from yeah. the synagogue or, um, you know, Chelsea Manning uh, and the, the guy who immolated himself. Um, so, um, you know, you're saying there are limits to what you can do. Yeah, I, I guess that makes me a little bit culturally conservative because the, the point of art is to transgress and to push boundaries, etc. But um, uh, it, it seems to me, actually, yeah, these, these, these are potentially such powerful forces uh, for us to confront and deal with that somebody who's got nothing to say and can't bring it together is just way out of his league in, in having attempted to do so. And, and, but uh, I don't think the point of art is to transgress for the sake of transgression. I think if you transgress, there should be a point to it. And in, to why? me... Well, I need to hear there, the point. What is the point? To me, there is a point to, to, it, to it in this piece. I, I think in a, in a very broad sense, it's asking you to see the similarities between things that you might not see as similar. And I, to me, that's... But all great opera productions do that when they when they transpose the, the setting. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, or you can do you can do a passion play, but with contemporary costumes or and bringing in current scenes. But people have been doing that since the Middle Ages. I mean, this is not, the, the the idea of historical uh, transposition is 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 absolutely, you know, just completely there in our culture. He's not doing anything new in that, other than just bringing. Uh, no, I just think it's a mess. But we might have to agree to disagree. Right, right. <laughs> and I think we should use, uh, we are, I'm looking at the watch, we need, we need to, to press on. And Great, thank you very much. So, certainly two exhibitions where time is of the essence, a continuous projection of a, a film which is as long as the opening hours of the gallery, uh, in the case of Luring Augustine in Bushwick, uh, for Ragnar Kjartansson and The National, uh, A Lot of Sorrow. And the ball is in our court as visitors to um, the generator, Marina Abramovich at Sean Kelly. We can stay for three minutes. We can stay for, again, the opening hours of the gallery, if we are so moved to do so. Um, but possibly rather different experiences. Um, Let's start, why don't we, even though we saw the videos in that order, let's actually um, start with Kjartansson. And then um, when we move into Abramovich, we may want to also 
um, find ourselves, we may find ourselves talking about both. That's, that's certainly a possibility in, on the table. Um, Edward, could I, could I ask you to simply describe what it is that we're experiencing with, with this work? With Kiartensen. With Kiartensen. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, so you come into this space, which is way out in Bushwick. It's dark. And um, you're basically watching a music video. And um, what I noticed right off the bat was, um, unlike other music videos, um, it didn't seem to be so focused on the music. In other words, um, the camera angles and the focus uh, were on um, the minutest details of what the band members were wearing, uh, their, uh, the detail of the lead singer's glasses, uh, the glittery stuff on the drums. Um, it was all uh, very present, um, you know, people's nose hairs. Um, and. So uh, that was the first thing I noticed. And then uh, the second thing I noticed, well, this band has a really dull delivery. And uh, so, um, you know, they're, they're kind of looking down. They're not looking at the audience. And uh, the, um, the energy level seems so low. And so later I talked to the gallery staff, and they explained that they had been playing the same thing for six hours. And I said, oh, OK, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then I, I read more about the band, and that's just how they are. So it's a Cincinnati thing, I think. It's, yes, it's, uh, it's very much the indie, grungy kind of band, although not grungy in appearance. It could be an, um, a six-hour ad for John Varvatos or somebody, because they very, very, uh, very chic, very chicly dressed in a grungy kind of way. Um, but let's, let's also grasp what we're actually looking at technically. And it's, it's an interesting situation here. I mean, which is the more empirical approach if, if one is asked as a critic to describe something, to describe what you saw when you saw it, or to do your homework? I suppose this is the difference between a critic and an art historian. Should one, dis, uh, should one do the homework and find out and report what it was, how it was made, how long it lasts, etc., Or just experience, um, Edward has given this the I was there, this is what I saw. Um, Sarah, can you, can you give us the, the technical specs? What, what is it that actually we're seeing? Well, I don't know. I was actually wanting to approach this from a different perspective to, than, than what you had. Um, well, first of all, it, it's interesting. While you were talking, I was realizing that I came to it so differently because I, I actually really like that song. I know that song. I, I have it on my iTunes, whatever. I hadn't listened to it for a while. I sat down and, you know, the first couple times I was like, wow, I really like this song. Oh, I like hearing it again, too. And, you know, the third time it's great. And then the fourth time was like, boy, you know, when you wear out a song, you know, like you're, you wear out an album. And I started to get annoyed because he was wearing it out for me. Like it wasn't even, you know, so there was that. But then the other thing that it, it, it's also somewhat dependent on, there's this aspect of, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the artist would then come onto the stage. Like at one point he served them some food, but it's kind of like if you're, 
if you're completely innocent to the fact that that's the artist, then that's just some stagehand coming up to serve them food. So I suppose that's another aspect of what you were saying, David. Mm. You know, if you know that, that certainly adds a dimension to it, I suppose. Uh, I suppose if you don't know that, it, it doesn't um, necessarily add a dimension. Like there isn't, like if you know that's the artist, then oh, there's some kind of self-referentiality or something going on there. Um, but I guess what, you know, I, I like that song. I wanted to enjoy this piece and, and there's something very charming about so many aspects of, of Ragnar Kajardinson's art. And I think it's so dependent in some ways on his self-presentation. Um, but I was wondering how this relates to, for instance, like the history of like durational performance. If you think about people like Chris Burden or, or even actually Marina Abramovich, you know. Right, exactly. It's, there's a certain amount of like outsourcing going on here too. I, I realize this is a collaborative project, but it's, I mean, I don't, you know, this was a six hour performance that took place at PS1, I think in their performance dome. Um, I guess I don't consider myself conservative, but I did have a kind of, is this art moment in there? You know, you know, like, is this art or is it, I wouldn't say a music video, I'd say like a concert film, because there are some really great concert films out there. I, I also happen to know a, a musician in Minneapolis who does a 24 hour song, you know, so I, I don't know, to me it's, it, it has overlap with a lot of other things. I don't know. I think it's, one, could, one could draw up an interesting kind of economic history of endurance art that absolutely mirrors the economy of the world in that in its pioneer days it was the artist him or herself that underwent the endurance and gradually it, as you say, has been outsourced. Some musicians or members of the public have to do the enduring and the artist uh, and it's, has become a more mature kind of capitalist who can stand back and delegate the endurance to those who are paying for it, um, which is uh, kind of, um, yeah, that's, that's endurance art for the global capitalist age, you could say. But Lance, um, I, I must say I didn't know the song as Sarah did before, and I just fell in love with it. I, in fact, sort of play it sometimes. I, I play their concerts on, um, um, on YouTube or whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's good kind of bland music to have in the background if you're doing some menial task like uploading the latest podcast to the review panel. But um, <laughs> how do you get along with it? Well, has it been made clear that it's the same song that's three minutes and 30 seconds long played over and over again for six hours, never stopping, okay? Um, and Lance stayed for the entire six, is no, this on? He stayed I, for the entire six hours. Yes, yeah. that was very noble of you. Yeah, Thank you for doing that. One. I did yes. not stay for the entire <laughs> six hours. No, I did give it an hour, though. Um, two hours in, I gave it an hour. So I saw 20, uh, saw it 20 times. Um, yeah, it's, you brought up this point, David. Um, it's, it, I guess we're going into the era of the phone it in artist you know, where the artist doesn't really have to be present. You kind of just give direction to other people. And in terms of the endurance, I mean, uh, you know, he has done works that do involve his endurance. But, you know, there's the one where he had his three nieces sing for, I think, 12 hours straight um, on a round bed or whatever it was at the Carnegie, um, and, which I prefer to this. But 
I'm familiar with the song. I, I like the band. I only have one of their albums, but um, I got tired of it very quickly. And one of the things that I think galleries need to deal with is the problem with works like this, which my largest problem was the sound system, which I thought was a little subpar. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, thought it was pretty I thought it was stunning. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm really into my stereo. <laughs> and there are times when I will uh, stay up late, have a couple drinks, um, and I'll sometimes play the same song over five times in a row so that I can listen to it at concert level volume. Um, and I don't know what my neighbors think of that. I don't think they hear it. But um, I, I am, I'm not against this idea of, of trying to take something in over time, especially a song. And um, especially a song you like. I, I felt that, um, as I said, the, the sound was a little screechy at times. I think that the, it was, they were, the speakers were monitor speakers. They're not really high fidelity speakers. I feel like that's something that gallerists need to take into, into consideration, especially with a, a sound piece that is specifically a sound piece. So there was that. For me, it became less visual. And I kind of closed my eyes and just took in the song. And I came in and out of looking at what was going on, how the camera moved. I felt that it was well filmed. Um, I did find that the two benches were an endurance test of their own. Okay, they were um, unfinished plywood um, that bit into my legs, my thighs. I don't think the people who uh, designed those benches ever sat on them. Not and for six hours. Not yes. for six hours, not even for an hour. So you've got two hardwood benches. I mean, what is the encouragement here? Is that part of the work? Like, hey, fuck you. <laughs> Try and sit here for six hours. We Although, dare you. When you I know? was there, I mean, a person was lying on the floor. But I mean, there is, who there wants to really do that? It's like, it's like movie theater carpet, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't see it. There could be gum or who knows what. Um, Especially those of us who, who'd actually been to, to review um, uh, Marcel Jama just uh, the, the, a month or two earlier, where David Zwerner could at least uh, spring to some beanbags, and that was... Uh, beanbags would be nice, or movie theater. If you're going to give me a six-hour film, give me movie theater seats. That is a seats. rather good point. And let mm. me sit back with maybe even a drink and actually take it in, and so I don't have to focus, so that I can focus on the art Instead of, you know, um, Clay said, if you look at a painting, you need a comfortable chair because when you're looking at art, it takes um, stamina and it takes a long time to look at a work of art and your legs get tired and you shouldn't be distracted by your tired legs. And in this case, and I find this more and more often, it's like the galleries are showing these very long videos, these very long, these um, films, these uh, music things, and then, but they don't invest any money in their sound systems really or in their in their seating. So anyway, that's maybe an aside. No, but, but that's useful ones. Thank you. But in fact, it, it, it raises an interesting point, though, the, the, the idea of, of uh, the unendurability of it, <laughs> which is that um, when you think about it, it, those of us who've, I mean, I'm, I, I don't claim to be an adept, but I've, I've had a few goes in my time at meditation and, and usually give up because my knees hurt. Now, uh, it, it seems to me, actually, that this is... Um, in fact, both these ex exhibitions, um, and this is not my insight, a rather brilliant student I was discussing this with, offered this, that, that, that both these shows actually uh, take the most classic um, modes of meditation technique 
and, and exploit them to take the audience to a particular place very quickly, uh, either uh, sensory deprivation or the repetition of a mantra. So um, it seems to me, and we should bear in mind, we should make, make it absolutely clear in case it's not clear, that the, 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 film, uh, the, the film is of a concert in which um, the national played over and over again the same song. It's not, uh, it's, it's not that the video is on a loop. There was an actual performance that took six hours for them. And therefore, in fact, it's never literally repeated. This is a band that um, plays, uh, that, that basically interprets it uh, the number of times that the song is iterated. The other point to bear in mind is that the song itself, three and a half minutes, is highly repetitive. It's basically one phrase uh, repeated and repeated. So we are getting uh, a massive repetition of what is already repetitive, but is very much um, a kind of mournful, soulful, as we heard, song. So should we be thinking of it as a mode of meditation, Edward? Or is that, is that, a, is that a presumption on the part of the artist, or is that uh, an overinterpretation on my part? What, what is the relationship of this work to the, to the act of meditation? Yeah, I wasn't really thinking of, of that at all. Um, I was focused on the visual aspects of it, actually. And um, if it was meditative, it was um, just because um, the fact of focusing on those things and maybe the repetitive sound, um, you know, induced a kind of meditation. But I, I wasn't convinced that that was the idea of it. Um, I want to follow up on some things that, that um, the other panelists have been saying about the involvement of the artist in this work. Um, I re reviewed a show called Due North in Philadelphia um, that uh, was a collaboration uh, between Icelandic artists and uh, American artists. Um, some uh, US artists went over there and did a residency, and then there were several Icelandic artists who were exhibited, and there was a lot of information about art making in Iceland. And uh, one of the things that was said was, um, Iceland is a very small country, there aren't that many artists, and they're all very versatile. So people do music and visual art. Um, and uh, Ragnar Kjartason is, is one of them, um, and he sings. And so not knowing who the national was, I thought, oh, maybe this is him singing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was kind of disappointed to learn that his only role in this was sort of coming in and out occasionally. Handing out fruit. Handing out fruit, whatever he was doing. And, um, uh, you know, that he wasn't being, um, you know, his versatile Icelandic self. Um, so, uh, and, and yes, it seemed very much outsourced. And, and that was kind of disappointing. You know, there was there was also a, a part when I was watching when the lead singer, I don't know who, what his name is, but um, they're all very attractive people to look at. You know, they're very, they have a really good stage presence, very laid back. But he left to go to the bathroom. <clears throat> and at different times during the uh, video, different musicians take more of a lead role or kind of do solos at different times or they, you know, they, they you know, they allow for people to rest a little bit or something. But during that scene, it reminded me of a scene from This Is Spinal Tap, when um, there was, they lost half the creative force of the band, 
And so they had no set list left. And um, so they started to do, they said, oh, we're going to do our jazz fusion, um, you know, our new direction. And as soon as the lead singer left, I felt like the whole thing just fell apart. Like, I felt like the song, because of its repetition, because of the drone of it that you really start to ride, it's really like a kind of ebb and flow thing. I didn't feel it was meditative, but you, you get into the song, you just kind of ride it, and then suddenly there's like a jazz fusion thing going on where, where he was playing the guitar with his, uh, with the bow, the, and, and it just got, it really kind of, for me, it, it lost it completely. Like the band for me hadn't really thought it through in terms of what are we going to do when somebody leaves the stage. But I think that's actually, I mean, if you want to talk, I think if the artist is doing something here that's interesting sort of formally with the song, it's the idea that he, he wants to see, and in this, this I kind of like about it, is that he, it's like he wants to see and he wants us to see what the band does with a song if it is playing it over and over and over and to draw our attention to these small variations. So that's something we take for granted as a discrete thing. This song is not going to be the same after 30 times. It's not actually the same song. It's Never. something different, right. it's you know? And so that, that's an interesting aspect. And, and, and I guess to think about that intellectually it is, is, is an interesting activity, is an interesting exercise. But then I just come back to, you know, not that the point of this panel is to judge works of art necessarily, but I, okay, well. <laughs> Anyhow, I just ask myself, how dependent is my, um, is my judgment of this as an interesting work of art as it, dependent on the fact that that's just a good song? You know, and that, and in that sense, I can't help but think like, I like that song. I'm not sure I needed an artwork made out of it, but at the same time, there are these things like like those small variations that are interesting. If you think about it in the sense of something like, like if you think about um, African sculpture, you know, there are these forms. Like you, you have. Um, you know, sculptures from one tribe that it'll be in one, like a lobi figure. There is a, a specific form that is a lobi figure, but every, the, the great lobi figures are great because of their small variations, the way they differ from, you know, the typical form. And I think that's what he's trying to get us to pay attention to the variations in the song, and that's, that is interesting formally. I, I think it's about time, and I, I, I think that the song, is is lovely and it is mesmerizing and it's chosen for that reason but that um even though he's made multiple works about that, that use music he's done a, a performance similar in a way i i believe but i've only heard it described i've not actually experienced it where schubert's andy music is performed by um, various singers uh, incessantly um and he's also done a piece that was reviewed on the review panel not so many years ago where we we actually looked at um, where, where he had that multi-screen uh, set up in, an, in a country house upstate New York, and one song is being played in different, uh, by different people at different times in different rooms. But it seemed to me that in this work, it, it really clicked for me, and that um, I, I would actually say, although it's not as, as compelling and it is not as much my favorite, uh, it's, it's, it's not was not as moving an experience for me, I would nonetheless put it in the same bracket as uh, Christian Mark plays The Clock, 
that this is, this is a film that, this is a, a work of art that really um, grasps at multiple levels uh, the, the, the philosophical implications of, of time, of the distinction between duration and real time, of, of, of a sense of real presence and recording of a sense of uh, endurance, but then leaving it to you whether you want to endure it. Uh, it's, I think it, it's also, uh, and this is an insight of another of my students, uh, kind of brilliant in the way that it, it, it taps into the, the, the distinction between performance and rehearsal, and, and in that um, by, by, doing, by, by making a performance out of the multiple repetition and, and therefore variation on one song, um, it brings onto the stage uh, an experience that's similar to that of the writing of a song or learning of a song in a studio. So it's, I think, a, a, a rather ingenious kind of almost Rubik cube of uh, conceptually in which he's got his ducks in the right row to mix metaphors. Um, that's but my actually, now that work. you say that, what's in another aspect of this is that the, the band isn't the only ones in this durational activity. There's also the audience, and you, you, you know, the recorded I, audience. Yes. Yeah, and I mm. found myself often sort of paying attention to the audience and wondering, you know, do these people stay the whole time? And in fact, one time that he comes out with the food, he, the band starts handing it, or he starts handing it to the audience members, and then they get some napkins, and you know, it was kind of interesting to to think about that dimension of it too. Um, Actually, the, that now that you say that, thinking about you know time and these durational artworks. Actually, my favorite artwork by him um, was what he did. I, I guess it was the 2009 Venice Biennale. He had the Icelandic, the Iceland's pavilion, and it was in this kind of um, dilapidated uh, um, palazzo along the, one of the canals, and it was um, he lived there I think for a year, and he made a painting a day, and he his model was like wearing this little like swimsuit and there was something very um it it, it was interesting and it, it was kind of very immersive and um but it was again the idea of like taking painting and making it this this durational activity and it was all about time it wasn't about the paintings but anyhow um so we're with Ursula von Riedingsvard at Gallery Le Long um formally I think you'd agree uh, Lance, um, uh, a very different experience in, in, in that uh, an artist with a very distinctive touch, bringing them to bear on um, uh, uh, focused objects. Uh, what is your response to her work? Well, <laughs> yeah, um, I think I reviewed a show of hers maybe 15 years ago or something, but it was a di very different kind of exhibition. But um, I've always kind of been not really sure why it didn't really sit right with me, but I'd never given it that much thought before. And I, I spent some time in the exhibition, and I guess for me, there's something out of scale about them, and um, something rather, like, I think she gets at beautiful, shimmering kinds of experiences, but in terms of the form itself, for me, they they seem kind of bottom heavy and without enough liftoff. Um, and th th there's not enough transformation for me of the material. And I also, I kind of had a, a feeling that 
you know, like, like, like the giant spoon and the giant ladle felt a little bit like theatrical props to me from some, you know, like strange Broadway show, um, you know, where there were giants. And, and so there was a, there was a theatricality to them without really, for me, getting to a place of, of purposeful kind of, um, usefulness in and of themselves or something like they were, they were kind of somewhat illustrative yet somewhat like, like not sculptural enough for me in a sense. And by that, I mean that they, you know, a, a transformation of the material, a sense of liftoff, a sense of maybe defying gravity, um, that I feel in, in, in sculpture that I love, but you know, heavy, big sculpture like that. But I also, I had, a, I, I, I was there and I had this memory of, of going on vacations as a kid and we would go camping every summer somewhere. And so we'd go to the Dakotas or we'd go, and we always went to these trading, these uh, tourist trading places uh, where they sold trinkets and all kinds of stuff. And they often had these carved wooden bears outside that were really big and kind of clunky and chipped away at. And it suddenly hit me that that's the, that was the f response I was having. It was like, it was taking me back to those bears, like that kind of crude quality. And so for me, they're, they're a little bit stuck in a kind of 1970, 1970s aesthetic of kind of a crafty kind of thing. I don't know, like kind of well-made, but I, I, I just, they, they kind of rub me the wrong way. I don't know, that's... Uh, okay, okay. Um, Edward, um, I've been following her work for quite some years and um, I've reviewed, I think, quite appreciatively some of her work in the past. Uh, a characteristic of, I've, I've either seen works in sculpture parks um, or I've seen shows where there's a, a, a focus on one really humongous behemoth kind of figure or form uh, in, in the center of the room. Um, uh, this is a show of individual pieces and I'm wondering if perhaps some of um, uh, Lance's uh, negativity about the, the craftsy aspect of this um, is, is related to the fact that we're looking at these, a showroom with individual bits in them, rather than pieces in it, rather than um, that, that experience that we've, may have been more positive experience we've had of the monumental uh, Riddingsfahrt. What's your feelings on that? Yeah, I don't really um, mind that they're smaller scale and that there are many of them. And uh, for me, um, uh, what takes it beyond just sort of crafty and um, kind of nice, nicely carved organic forms is the way she puts this together from clusters of small, smaller boards um, um, and the way those boards are um, kind of going in the opposite direction of the way she carves them. So I feel I'm almost like I'm looking at um, rock that's been carved out by the ocean. And, um, uh, you know, the amount of force or energy that is, is uh, built into that um, is really, you know, part of what you experience when you look at this. Um, and uh, so like those spoons even that, and, and, and I, you know, take your point that they look like giant theatrical props, maybe the kind of thing that you would see in one of those street demonstrations with big puppet heads. Um, but then when you look at how they're put together um, and you know how the 
boards kind of go in different directions and she arrived at this shape sort of magically. Um, I don't know, it, it really, you know, it does something for me. And then there's another layer that I experience. Um, there's one piece in particular that was right up against the wall. I, f I forget the title of it, uh, but it looked like rivulets of, of mud that were carved out by, by water, um, or it could be tree bark or, or something. Uh, but there's this kind of dislocation of scale that happens uh, when you look at these pieces. Like they could be almost any, you know, level of matter from, from the microscopic to, to the gigantic. Right. So, so the, these, these quite energizing dislocations of scale, in other words. Right, right. And that's maybe one reason why I don't mind the fact that these are smaller pieces in a gallery rather yes. than yes. monumental. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it struck me, um, uh, Sarah, you, you mentioned in relation to von Riddings God and also um, other shows we're thinking about this, this evening, um, Martin Puria around the corner at um, uh, Matthew Marks, that, um, that, that actually um, this experience, I'd be interested to know how you respond to, to the, the scale dislocations within the show because um, when Puria had his retrospective at MoMA, which was as well installed as it could have been by John Elderfield, um, it was it was a, it was hard work to separate the individual sensations in, in Matthew Marks with his sumptuous space. It finally really comes together. I, I wonder how Avon um, um, uh, uh, Riddingsvard retrospective would even happen, but it's. And she richly deserves one, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I my my reaction, you know, to her work in this show and in other, you know, exhibitions I've seen, the the only thing that ever, I would say, when when her work doesn't completely succeed, my complaint about it has to do with a certain for abstract work, a certain lugubrious or or maybe um, ponderous quality to it, or maybe a portentous quality. Mm -hmm. um, but I think. What I'm always struck by is she's an artist who has, you know, like her work mainly with this, with the cedar wood and this um, process of rubbing the graphite onto it after, and, and and just that it's this appreciation for an artist who has worked with the material for so long and achieved such sort of intimacy with, with that material and, and understanding of it over time. And I think that's what always I'm sort of newly struck by by that, and 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 kind of I, I think there's a lot of it's a it's a very rare thing maybe these days to to see that, and and I, I think it's really remarkable. And and then you know we're talking about this exhibition, of course, but um, she did just have I think a, a, a huge show in the, uh, Yorkshire Sculpture, Sculpture Park, Park, right? Yes, and, yes. And, and you know it's not really fair to bring that in because we're not talking about that, but. I mean that's real, like the, the, that giant piece and the, there is a real accomplishment. I mean it just like the amount, the the kind of work that goes into that, and the, you know, if you were going to talk about craft, like that's just. It 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 seems to me she has a a very consistent, and and somewhat tragic vision, and and that it comes across um, um, that that there's there's something heroic and mythic and. 
And that's exactly what I'm saying. Sometimes it's a little too much. It's like when it doesn't quite succeed, it's because it's a little too much. Well, yeah. sometimes Wagner's a little too much, but I mean, yes. it's uh, it, he's still a great artist. Yeah. Um, um, Lance, um, this 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 seventies craft feeling is that is that because of a, a too strong uh, a, a sensibility and vision on her part? Do you think, or it's just there's something about her touch that just rubs you up the wrong way? Is it just a purely taste well, thing? Well, I, I don't. Or is I don't there want to. No, wrong? I don't. I don't think that. Um, I mean, yeah, there there are certain artists whose hands don't appeal to you, for instance. Okay. The voice doesn't. I, I don't think, for me, that's that's necessarily true because I don't I don't have an aversion to a particular kind of, of hand or anything. I think that if an artist is uh, very very good at what he or she does, then um, and is very familiar with the craft, very much in touch with the craft, and able to transform it into something remarkable, that you. Um, the artist makes you believe in, in his or her hand. Um, you believe that there's no other way that this could happen, yes. um, that it's exactly what it's supposed to be. And um, for me, she does not convince at that level. And part of it has to do with the, with the sense of my experience of abstract sculpture. And, you know, I mean, I would, uh, I, she's not a classicist in that sense. I mean, I would prefer ARP to her you know, any day of the week, but I also, I love Brancusi's basses too. And, and I think for me in part, that's more of the connection I would make, um, would be to Brancusi on some level, um, who, who combines many different kinds of, of hands. But um, no, I, I think that, that overall for me, the, the pieces, and this goes back to my idea about the the theatricality of them, and I haven't. I don't. I don't know that I've ever seen a, a monumental work of hers. I don't know that I have. I saw some photographs, but um, there's a, there's a sense for me in each piece that it's somehow a fragment of a larger whole, of a larger form, of something really humongous. Yeah, there's a certain kind of all over, like like it's been chopped off at a certain point that, and I'm not really clear on why it was chopped there. It's kind of the way I feel about the Freedom Tower. You know, that it's like, really that height? You know, like, why there? Like, it, it doesn't, it feels too short or too tall or something. And so there's a, there's a sense for me in relationship to them that um, where, where I feel there's a larger whole that is, has been broken into pieces. And, um, and, and in that sense, they, they have the kind of sense of a found object for me or of somebody collecting rocks or specimens or something. Well, they do have that, that reference to nature. And I think they also have a, a, a sort of a DNA to them that, in that they are cellular. They, are, um, they could carry on or they could fall short. I mean, they, they are made of a, a digital component that, that, that can and should repeat. It's, it's the, it's the, wef, it's the, it's, it's like the, it's like, some sort of skin, yes. Yeah, Edward. yeah. Um, actually, that, this is what I like about them. It's yeah. They do seem like they're chopped off of some larger whole. Like if you could um, dis discover the logic that put them together, you could replicate that form, and it would get larger and larger. And actually, I, I was just going to say that um, I, I, you know, I was saying like when I think her work doesn't quite succeed, there's this maybe lugubrious quality to it. That's what I what comes to mind, but um, when I think it does succeed, it's 
it's metaphorical in a way that it suggests many different things um, instead of just one thing. I think that maybe is the problem with the spoon pieces is that they're, they're too tied to one form. And somehow when she's more successful, they can suggest a number of different things at once and that they're very rich in that way. And, um, and there, were, there were some pieces in, in this show that did speak to me in that way and others that didn't, so, you know. Right, right. Good. Thank you very much. I think it's a good time to bring in the audience very briefly. Uh, let's first of all get your comments, if you have any, on uh, Tommy Hartung, um, about whom the panel was somewhat divided. Um, any, uh, any, any thoughts on uh, the, the, uh, the nature of his work and the, the themes he was willing to embrace? Yes, thank you. I just found it interesting that it was like reading the paper in the morning. The ridiculous next to, you know, there were dolls, but yet people are being beheaded. And, you know, then you talk about the most ridiculous things next to them, and that's just what it reminded me of, everyday living. So that really spoke to me. And, you know, I didn't really understand it, and I read a review of it after, and I would have stayed the whole hour had I realized it was an hour. I had no idea how long it was going to be. I stayed for maybe 15, 20 minutes. But I found it really did speak to me in the way the world is. Great. Thank you very much. Yes, in the front row. Hi. When, actually, while you were speaking, I, I did see the piece. While you were speaking, you were talking about this frenetic and chaotic energy. And my mind went the exact opposite in recalling something for, I'd read in literature, Walden II, which is a utopian novel. And in it, they, it's actually, they are trying to create this ideal utopia. It's, it's sort of the schematics for it. And they do bring in art, and it's this purely, almost non-chaotic art. And so I could look at this piece now from this discussion and think of it perhaps as a purely chaotic art, or, or maybe the maybe the rejection of a utopian society, which we're always a little fearful of coming, coming to. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? We're not going to give any more thoughts tonight. I'm afraid you've got all your thoughts. <laughs> we're, we're giving you time to give your thoughts. But thank you for that observation and, and that comparison. And um, also von Riddingsvard, let's, uh, uh, let's take a comment or two on, on, on her work, um, if, if they are forthcoming. Um, yes, at the back, thank you, uh, Michael Norton. Hi, I think that any time you start talking about an artist and you start talking about their technique or their craft, there's an issue with the sculpture. I would not necessarily have t started talking about her talking about that, but I think that a couple of you might be having a problem with her because that's why you how you started the conversation about her as you're saying what when you when you talk about an artist as a craftsperson then it's really not correct but if you talk about their technique then there's another layer there but a, a sculptor is an artist they're not a craftsperson so i think that was the only comment i had to make there Yeah, that, that is a profound, a profound provocation on which I think all of us on the panel would want to jump in and, and, and argue for hours about um, or, or defend our 
performance, perhaps. But um, let's uh, let's do that in the in the cold night air. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attention. See you next year.